You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll find out about diabetes. Mabel Chu, our Sydney-based associate editor, discovers why it's important not to miss the diagnosis in children. The very youngest children tend to be more sick at presentation just because I think parents and doctors don't think about the possibility of diabetes when these children are, are becoming ill. And about a new therapeutic agent, glucagon-like peptide 1 analogues for type 2 diabetes. In fact, the most powerful stimulus to insulin secretion after a meal is, is in fact a series of signals that come from the gut. And the most important of these hormones in, in, in humans is GLP-1. But before that, I'm joined by David Payne, who's here with his pick of the week. Hi, David. Hello, Duncan. Uh, yeah, I thought, um, obviously, that we've got a very diabetes focus in the podcast this week, which reminded me that we've done some changes to one of the specialist portals we have for diabetes. It's bmj.com forward slash diabetes. We've made some refinements to the way that articles are uh, show on that website, so there'll be a lot more um, diabetes-specific stuff on there. We've also got some sort of commercial sponsorship for that website. But um, but what it means in practice is that if you're interested in diabetes, you can go to bmj.com forward slash diabetes. You'll see all the latest articles from the BMJ to do with diabetes, including obviously the stuff that we're talking about today later in the podcast stuff from our specialist journals we have a whole raft of specialist journals here at the bmj and stuff from bmj learning so it's a real resource i think for clinicians that have got an interest in diabetes absolutely so what else have you got for us today? Well, it's half term here in the UK, so lots of parents are heading off to um, skiing holidays with their children. And um, we've got an editorial, actually, uh, this week about uh, helmets for skiers and snowboarders. Um, we're also running a poll on bmj.com about whether ski helmets should be compulsory. Uh, it's interesting because when we first proposed the poll on bmj.com, um, a lot of us in the office thought it was a no-brainer. Why wouldn't it be safer to wear helmets? But it t- turns out that it isn't a cut-and-dry case, and the editorial talks about the counter-arguments about you know, wearing helmets and um, the impact on, on sound and vision. So, so it isn't a cut-and-dry case, as I've said, and it just really caught my eye because I thought it was very topical. OK, and is there anything else that's a bit topical in the journal this week? I'm not sure about topical, Duncan, but there's a personal view by uh, Mikhail Evans, who has written something about male circumcision. This personal view really really um, asks about the, the case for male circumcision and highlights those countries which are considering a ban on male circumcision. It was certainly an eye-opener for me. Um, and he makes um, a very persuasive case, I think, about you know, why it's not appropriate to circumcise babies. Thanks, David. And, as usual, you can read all those articles and more in print, online on bmj.com and on the BMJ's new iPad app. Now, Mabel Chu hears about diabetes in children. I have with me Julie Edge, who is consultant in paediatric diabetes at the Oxford Children's Hospital. Julie, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you very much. Now, Type 1 diabetes in children, how common is it and how often are we missing it? Well, it's becoming more common. It's increasing each year in this country. And at the moment, about one in every 400 children under the age of 16 has type 1 diabetes. So it's not as rare as you might, as you might think. How many are we missing? We, we're not missing any. They all present in the end, uh, but the problem is that they can present extremely sick. Uh, if we don't pick it up when the first signs and symptoms uh, develop. And what are the consequences of uh, a delayed diagnosis? Well, what what can happen is that 
children can have fairly minor symptoms and signs at the beginning, which if, they, if these aren't recognized, they can gradually over the next hours or days become um, very sick uh, indeed. And some children can even die from it. And this is, this is called diabetic ketoacidosis. Is there an age group at which we need to be a lot more alert to the possibility of type 1 diabetes in children? can happen in children as young as under six months of age. Uh, and it can go on right the way through childhood up until um, 16 and into adulthood. So, so it's, it's something to be aware of um, at every age. The very youngest children tend to be more sick at presentation just because I think parents and doctors don't think about the possibility of diabetes when these children are, are becoming ill. Uh, and it may be because they don't tend to have the sort of classic symptoms and signs of drinking a lot and weighing a lot. Presumably, if diagnosis is delayed, um, they're misdiagnosed as something else. Are there common pitfalls here? There are because, uh, again, if the, the GP or the, or, you know, this happens with hospital doctors as well. It's not just GPs who don't think about diabetes, but if it's not thought about and the child becomes more unwell, uh, then they tend to get kusmal breathing, which is deep breathing to correct an acidosis. And that can be mistaken for asthma or pneumonia. So particularly in, in very young children, uh, that can happen. They can get quite severe abdominal pain. Um, they obviously, they start vomiting. So that can be mistaken for gastroenteritis uh, or an acute, uh, they can present as an acute abdomen and that can be, um, they can be sent to pediatric surgeons as an appendicitis. Um, so, but, so those are the, the commoner ones that, um, that this gets mistaken for. That's a very interesting point. So what are the things we ought to be looking for to make sure we don't miss this, this diagnosis in children? Well, if a child is unwell in any way, under the weather, just lacking in energy, just not quite right, often the parents will know that. The, things, the other things that they can present with are abdominal pain, constipation sometimes because they can become quite dehydrated gradually and also um, oral or vulval thrush in young children is generally uncommon and that can be a, a symptom or a sign of diabetes so I think it's just general awareness of thinking could this be diabetes and at that point if you think about it then you need to ask whether or not the child's been drinking a lot and weeing a lot and at that point the parents will often say oh, oh yes well I did notice that but I didn't want to say anything you know because it wasn't something they'd really thought was important. Just noticed in your paper that you mention secondary nocturnal enuresis I think that's a quite an important uh, feature should we mention it do you think? Yes definitely that's a symptom that's been noted to be the most common so polyuria and polydipsia during the day is something that parents may not appreciate but they do tend to notice if a child starts wetting the bed at night so in a child who's been previously dry during the day if they start wetting the bed then that really is very um, suggestive of, uh, of diabetes in children and that should be taken very seriously and not just put down to stress or or other or urinary possible urinary tract infection which is what the parents often think it is. Yes yeah, so it's important to realize that children don't necessarily present with the classic symptoms of polyuria and polydipsia. They, we need to ask parents about it when we're considering the possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And is weight loss an issue at all for children? Well, weight loss has sometimes occurred by the time the children present to us, but actually it's very interesting because parents tend not to notice weight loss. What they tend to think is happening is that the child is growing. So if a child loses weight and becomes thinner, the parents tend to think they're going through a growth spurt and they're getting taller. So it's something that 
that isn't, I mean, children aren't weighed regularly by their parents, so it's something that's not often picked up. Although if you ask about it directly, they may say, oh, yes, well, you know, she might have lost weight uh, recently. Okay. What should we do once we do suspect the diagnosis? Well, um, even, the, even the, the business of taking urine from children is quite difficult, particularly very young children who don't necessarily um, produce urine on demand. Um, and so we would, we would always say if you, if you can get a urine there and then, fine, uh, you know, test it and see whether you've got glucose and ketones in the urine. But if you can't get a urine at that moment, uh, just go straight to do a capillary blood glucose test, so a finger prick for a, for a blood glucose. Uh, because to send away a child with a urine pot and say, oh, bring this back in you know, the next few hours or days uh, is delaying the diagnosis, and that can cause children to become um, ketoacidotic. So at, at any point, if you can't get a urine test, just do a blood glucose test, and particularly in very young children, you might as well just go straight for a finger prick blood test. What are the pitfalls in testing for blood glucose levels? Should we aim for a fasting glucose level? Because there are far more people around with type 2 diabetes than there are with type 1. Uh, so GPs tend to be thinking about diagnosing diabetes with a fasting blood glucose test. And so what they sometimes do is send away the child and say, come back in the next day or two and we'll do a fasting blood glucose level, which again is, is delaying the diagnosis and is not necessary because all of these children will have a high blood glucose level at any time of the day. It, it, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's fasting or not. Once we do have uh, a blood glucose concentration, what is the diagnostic threshold for diabetes? Well, children presenting with type 1 diabetes generally have levels up in the high teens and 20s. But if you get a random blood glucose, anything over 11 millimoles per litre, that's diagnostic of diabetes. Uh, the thing to do as soon as you recognize that this, this is a high level is to contact your local paediatric department and send a child up to them uh, on that day. Okay, so the message there is don't delay. Thank you, Julie, for your time and for your helpful summary of how we should think of diabetes, type 1 diabetes in children and not miss the diagnosis. And that easily missed article is available online on bmj.com. Now, Mabel again, finding out about a new therapeutic agent for treatment of type 2 diabetes. I have with me John Wilding, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Liverpool and a diabetes consultant. John, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Hello. John, you've written an article for the BMJ's new therapeutic series on a new agent in diabetes or a, a group of new agents in diabetes called glucagon-like peptide 1 analogues or GLP-1 analogues for short. Now, would you like to tell us what these new drugs are and, and how they differ from the old? Most people will have taken a memory away from medical school that when you eat a meal, uh, insulin is secreted from the pancreas in response to the rise in, in, in blood glucose. But in fact, what research has shown over the last 20 or 30 years or so is in fact the most powerful stimulus to insulin secretion after a meal is, is in fact a series of signals that come from the gut. And the most important of these hormones in, in, in humans is GLP-1. GLP-1 also has some other important roles, including telling the, the body that you're full after a meal. Um, and we know that in, in diabetes, the ability of the gut to secrete GLP-1 is slightly impaired. 
Uh, and so it seemed to make sense to try and boost this system with a drug. And that's really what GLP-1 analogs are. GLP-1 analogs are modified peptides that stimulate the pancreas to make insulin after a meal uh, and also have a, have a modest effect uh, to reduce appetite. And therefore, they're very attractive agents, uh, in theory, to, to treat diabetes because they would both help a secretion of insulin and also potentially have an effect on, on body weight, which, of course, we know is a major cause of uh, type 2 diabetes and contributes uh, to uh, insulin resistance and, and, the, and the pathogenesis of type 2 diabetes. Okay, so how well do they work then? Well, in practice, these agents, of course, they are um, peptide hormones, so they can't be given by mouth because they'd be broken down in the gut. They have to be given uh, by, by injection. Uh, and the two available uh, agents are called exenatide, which is given twice a day, or liraglutide, which is given once a day uh, by injection. Uh, and these will lower uh, HbA1c, our preferred measure of glucose controlling diabetes, uh, by in, in the order of a, between about 0.8 and 1.2%, depending on the drug and the study that w in which it was studied and the circumstances in which it was studied. Um, there are outcome studies ongoing, but those would take some years before they're going to be reported, so we don't have any outcome data as in you know, reduced diabetes complications and so on uh, at the moment with these, with these agents, as we don't with, with, with most of the new agents. Uh, so these are... Uh, about equivalent in terms of their effectiveness to, to most of the other agents that we use uh, to treat uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, but uh, unlike many of the other agents, they do have the advantage uh, that they don't uh, cause uh, weight gain. And in fact, in many cases, uh, you will see a few kilograms of weight loss. What about the problem of hypoglycemia, which is also an issue with the other agents available? Well, that's actually a very, very interesting question because one of the uh, unique uh, points about uh, GLP-1 as opposed to, for example, uh, sulfonylureas is that their ability to stimulate insulin secretion is dependent upon the glucose concentration at the time. So if the blood glucose uh, concentration is high, then a GLP-1 agonist will stimulate insulin secretion. However, if the blood glucose levels falls uh, to below uh, normal levels below about 4 millimoles per litre, uh, then uh, these drugs will no longer stimulate insulin secretion. So what that means in practice is that if you use a GLP-1 analogue, for example, in combination with metformin, which on it, in, its, on its, in itself does not uh, cause hypoglycemia, uh, then the, the risk of hypoglycemia is, is, is very low. And the clinical trials have consistently shown uh, that where GLP-1 analogues are added to metformin, hypoglycemia rates are uh, really very little different uh, from uh, what you'd see with metformin alone. John, what are the practical issues we need to be discussing with patients whenever we're considering this particular, um, these particular drugs for someone? Well, I think it's, it's important uh, when we're talking to patients that we explain to them how the drug works. And I would certainly explain to them that this is an analogue of, of a natural peptide, but it is nevertheless uh, considered a drug. It has to be given by injection. Um, I would always explain to patients that this drug is going to be given for a trial period, and we will then uh, look at the response. And the responses that we're looking for are to see whether there's been improvement in blood glucose control, as measured by the HbA1c, and also a reduction in, in, in body weight. Um, and it's important to agree target figures with patients to ensure 
uh, that uh, only patients who are responders to the drug will continue the drug long term. I think it's important to explain to patients that um, they will uh, quite likely experience some nausea when they first start the drug, and for that reason we start with the lower dose for both agents, um, and that we find that about 1 in 20 patients will find that this side effect is intolerable and will probably uh, have to stop treatment uh, and, and go on to an alternative. I think it's important to discuss hypoglycemia with patients, uh, particularly um, uh, saying that this is low, but in those patients, and there will be some patients who are taking sulfonylureas, uh, they may need to monitor their blood sugar more frequently whilst uh, the drug is being started uh, because of the, the, the risk of, of hypoglycemia. Uh, very rarely we'll see uh, injection site reactions, and of course it's important to tell patients that if they get a, a red area or soreness around the injection site uh, and, uh, and, that, and that keeps happening, then, then again that could indicate um, sensitivity to one of the components or to the drug itself, and, um, and it might be necessary to uh, stop treatment or consider the alternative agent if that becomes a problem. More details on the GLP-1 analogues can be found in the article by John Wilding and Kevin Hardy online. The article is part of the BMJ's new therapeutic series. If you'd like to suggest further topics, please email us. Our details are at bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with research on the good and bad effects of alcohol. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.